Uh, we're in a series called Irresistible, a vision of what could be and should be, and we're talking about uh, the church. And last week we kicked it off with this big idea that when Jesus walked the planet, uh, he was irresistible to those who were irreligious. I don't know if you've read that, read the Gospels, read the account of Jesus' life, but when the Son of God, when God showed up onto the planet, those who were far from God uh, were completely attracted to him, and he was very resistible to those who were very religious. And what we wrestled with was, okay, why is it that the church so often ends up pushing people away from Jesus instead of to Jesus. If Jesus is irresistible and we are his followers to those who are irreligious, then it would make sense that the church should be, and I believe could be, yet again, irresistible. And we looked at the way of Jesus. If you remember this, we looked at uh, the account of Jesus calling one of his disciples, Matthew, or his uh, Hebrew name, Levi. And we saw that there was this way about Jesus that was simply irresistible, the way he went about life. And here's the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is first the way of family. That, that you're a family. That you first and foremost with Jesus, you belong. Like, he showed up to Matthew, Levi, tax collector. Everyone saw a uh, traitor. Everyone saw a uh, collaborator with the oppressive Roman regime. And Jesus saw son, image bearer of God. And he said, follow me. Which is different than fix up your life. Which is different, go figure it out, and then you can follow me. And Matthew gets up, follows him, and Matthew does what only he knows to do. He invites all his buddies, and he throws a rager, a massive party, and Jesus shows up to this party. It's un unbelievable. I mean, it's packed out. It's expensive. And he does something that is um, so offensive to those who are pious and religious, countercultural. And I can't even really express to you the weight of this moment. But with this group that did not fit in, this group that was far from God, this group, as they would call in the old days and in here, sinners, he ate with them. Now, to eat with somebody, it literally is what you reclined, you know. They, it was a sign of acceptance. Like, you belong. Like, I came for you. I don't agree with all the choices you made in your life, but I accept you. I love you. I came for you. The way of Jesus is first belonging and then believe. And that's been the process of so many people's story here, that they came and they belonged for a season. And they were new to this idea of church, new to this idea of Jesus. And as they belonged, somewhere along the way, they came to realize they believed that Jesus is God, that he came for them. And they put their faith and trust in Jesus. And Jesus is about this, by the way. Jesus is about heart transformation, not moral modification. Not somehow trying to get your life better. He wants to change your heart and change you from the inside out. And as you believe then in him, then you become who you're made to be. That is the irresistible way of Jesus. And at the scene of this story, if you remember, there were the Pharisees. And they 
have their way, the way of the Pharisees. And they grumbled about what Jesus was doing. And this is the way of the Pharisees. The way of Pharisees is the way of all religion. Every single religion follows this pattern. You have to believe the right things, then behave the right way. And when you believe and when you behave, you finally belong. When you believe the right things and when you behave and you begin to act the right way, then you finally belong. And sadly, I would suggest that the reason the church is not irresistible or the reason we're easily resistible to a hurting and broken world is we've fallen into the way of the Pharisees. If you have to believe and you have to behave the right way and then you finally belong. And what it produces, it produces a pride. We're better than. It produces exclusivity. It's, and then it's this special club. And then eventually, because you can't be- behave the right way all the time and you're f- afraid that if you ever share what's really going on inside, you'll no longer belong, it produces hypocrisy. And that's the church we live in. And that's the reason it is so irresistible. And I believe, I believe we're called to be an irresistible community to a hurting and broken world to bring Jesus to them. And so this morning, uh, we're going to talk about that section of believe. Last week, we talked about belong. This morning, we're going to talk about believe. The sermon title this morning's A Generous Orthodoxy. And I, I can't help but look around when we're talking about what we believe uh, and see that the world around us is incredibly divided, isn't it? It's incredibly hostile. Uh, there's a lot of anger Social media turns into shouting matches, and and it's just boiling over in our country. Let me let me let me brag on our church real quick because this is so good, because it was like I couldn't have scripted it better. Show up this morning, uh, and uh, a few of our teammates let me know that uh, the head custodian just came across all this graffiti, and so about a hundred yards on. a uh, lockers was all this obscene graffiti and then on walls and all over. And, and it's just the boiling over of young teenagers that are not sure how to express their anger at what's going on. And there's a lot of obscene things on there about the current culture of what's happening. And here's what I love about where we're at at Del Mar High, that we said this is more than a place to meet, but a people to love. That we don't just get to go to church, but we get to be the church here and and so we had a group immediately dive in where, and just begin to clean all of the graffiti so that when the, church, when the school, where's the church, there's the school, uh, when the school shows up Monday, they won't even see it. How cool is that? No, somebody's got to celebrate with me because that's amazing right there. You, you will come with me this morning. We'll get there. I get it. Uh, I promise you that. Uh, and sadly... Sadly, when we see this division, when we see this anger and hostility, these shouting matches in the world around us and confusion, sadly, the church often isn't any different, is it? Now, why, why does what we believe often divide us than rather unite us as followers of Jesus? Why does what we believe often divide us rather than unite us. 
Um, as I talk to people, and especially as I meet new people out and about, and we're having conversations and talking, and eventually it comes up like, hey, what do you do? And like, I'm an engineer. That's cool. What do you do? Uh, I work for, you know, Sony. What do you do? I'm like, oh, those are amazing jobs. That's awesome. Then they ask me, what do I do? And I, um, I, I'm, I'm always like tempted to lie. So, seriously, because I'm like trying to, how can I say this in a way that, um, it doesn't shut the conversation down because in this area, you say you're a pastor and go, people go, cool, all right. Well, it's been fun. You look normal, but then now I know you're not. I'm out of here. If it moves past that point, you know what question they ask? Every single time. Well, what kind of Christian are you? Have you ever had that question? Have you ever met someone, you know, and they find out that you're a Christian and all of a sudden they're trying to figure it out? Because from the outside, when the outside world is looking at the church, all they see is fragmented groups of Christians. And literally they'll say this, what brand of Christianity are you? Are you Catholic? Are you Baptist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you Methodist? What, what kind of Christian are you? Why does what we believe often divide us rather than unite us? And, and if you're new to church, I, I, forgive me, I'm going to go through some of the things that have divided the church, and there are going to be some terms that maybe you, you've never heard before, and so I'll explain them, but I, I just want to apologize for throwing out some of these words, Christianese, if you will. Uh, but here's some of the things that divide us. Uh, For example, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Not to be confused with Armenian, which is a people group. Uh, My brother-in-law is Armenian. But Calvinism stresses God's sovereignty, where Arminianism stresses free will of humanity. And yet there's these great divides, there's these shouting matches, there's whole volumes of books that are tit for tat, writing against one another, and all of them believe in Jesus. For example, egalitarian or complementarian. Egalitarian means uh, that they believe all genders are equal and should have a, play an equal role, especially within the church. Uh, complementarian believes that, well, that male and female are created to complement one another, but it really works out in the male headship or authority and that the man leads and the, and the woman follows. And yet both of these groups say they follow Jesus. And yet, again, there's a whole volumes, whole, like, if you, if you type in this stuff on Google, you'll, you'll see blogs that are downright mean. And yet they say they follow Jesus. What about uh, Pentecostal versus Baptist? And if you don't know the history of the church in America, both the America has been deeply shaped by Pentecostal and Baptist and seen major movements of God through that. But Pentecostal would lean in, and, you know, if you go to a real Pentecostal church, they'd say, we're spirit-filled. And then you'd go to a Baptist church and say, oh, we're Bible-based. And I'm going like, well, can't you be both? And there'll be this argument, oh, you can't go to that church, it's not a spirit Build church, or oh, you can't go to that church. They they believe in all the gifts. Seriously? Or how about this? Republican or Democrat? So I worked in Georgia for three years as a youth pastor. Um, this was so it's literally thirteen years ago. 
And as we're there is during the election, is the election of George W. Bush and uh, John Kerry. And during that time, you know, things get heated up somewhat politically for Christians. And everyone feels like they need to share their opinion. And I'm with a bunch of parents on a, you know, porch of a house. And this parent in Georgia is slamming Democrats, like, just vehemently in front of all these junior hires. And I'm sitting there, I'm a young youth pastor trying to figure out, what do I say in this moment? Because this is what these kids are hearing and they're going to be reproducing. And how do I bring Jesus into this moment? Because this doesn't feel very Jesus-y to me. And so I stepped in and I said, you know, that many of our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ are Democrats. And do you know why? And it gets so silent. Because Democrats are way better at loving the least of these at being concerned about the social issues and problems in our world. And then this lady kind of shut up in the moment and then afterwards came to me. And, you know, she, she leaned in. She's like, you don't really believe that, do you? I said, yes, ma'am, I do. See, because what if we, instead of we're a Democrat, Christian, a Republican, Christian? What if we were a Jesus follower first and our politics second? See, why is it that what we believe often divides us rather than unites us? And here's the thing. Did you know that the early church, this is so amazing, that the early church was a group of difference. They were a group, as I love how Scott McKnight says it, they were a group of difference and unlikes. You had slaves worshiping next to free men. You had slaves that were leading churches, and you had free men and women right next to them. You, you had men and women worshiping together. That was crazy at the time. You had different ethnicity, social, economic. You had even different, um, oh man, different politics. Even Jesus' disciples were a group of difference. We know they, you know, they weren't the like top of the class. We hear that all the time. But take Matthew the tax collector. Think about this. Matthew the tax collector, a corroborator with the Roman government. Did you know also that Jesus called a guy named Simon the Zealot to follow him? Now Simon the Zealot, he was uh, a part of a a political movement that was very nationalistic for Jerusalem and Israel. And so they were basically freedom fighters trying to undermine the Roman government. And this zealot group were zealous of undermining the Roman government and would do it in some even terroristic ways. And Jesus saw him too and said, come follow me. And you got a tax collector and a zealot right next to each other. And see, here's what's so amazing about the early church. And here's what was so irresistible. And this is what made it unstoppable. They had one central belief that unified a group of difference. 
something that they believed that actually united them instead of divided them. Now, Jesus knew for us that, our, that we were going to struggle with this. Jesus knew that this whole idea of division and disunity was going to be hard. He knew that he was calling a group a difference, and eventually we were going to really, really struggle and mess this up. And so did you know that on the night Jesus betrayed, his last moments with his disciples, he prays. And he prays this prayer. It's often called Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays in John chapter 17 for you. And for me, did you know that? Like Jesus prays for his disciples in this last moment. He knows what's about to happen, but then he stops and he prays for you and for me. And this is what Jesus prays. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, speaking of his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be, help me out. Okay, we'll try it again. We'll try it again. We're, we're almost there. We're almost there. Man, you, I know you're leaning in, so I know you're with me, but, but we're going to verbally get there by the end of the for those who will believe in me through their message, that they may be, that was good, way to go church. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that, here's why, the world may believe that you have sent me. This idea of unity is incredibly important to Jesus. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus knew. And this is the reason Jesus prayed this. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the greatest enemy to an irresistible movement greatest enemy to what bringing the kingdom of God onto planet earth was division within followers of Jesus, was disunity among the ranks. And so he stops and he prays for you and for me. The next day, Jesus would be crucified, die Sunday morning, he would rise again to new life. He would spend 40 days teaching and appearing to multiple eyewitnesses, over 500 eyewitnesses. And then he would ascend into heaven and leave marching orders for this group of difference and unlikes to then go and bring the kingdom of God, this irresistible movement of God, to a hurting and broken planet. And the story of Acts, or the book of Acts, really unpacks how this began and what the early church uh, did. And it, I would encourage you, this is so fascinating, so incredible. Read the book of Acts. Get it out this week. Read it, read it, read it. And throughout the book of Acts, you'll find that there's little summary statements, like chapter 2 at the end. There's a little summary statement of like what was going on. In chapter 4, we see the summary statement of about a year or so after uh, Jesus ascends into heaven, he prayed this prayer prayer of unity, and it says that all the believers were one in heart and mind. And now it's going to tell us what united this fellowship of difference together. No one claimed that uh, any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now listen to this. With great power, the apostles continued, and now circle this word, testify. Testify. It's the word witness. 
Now, when we think about the word witness, we, we if you're in the kind of Christianese world, you think about sharing your faith. You think about, um, uh, yeah, going out and witnessing. Or, uh, But here's what the disciples did. They just simply told people what they saw. It wasn't what they believed in. It's what they saw. They had seen the risen Savior, Jesus. Peter had denied the risen Savior, Jesus, three times. He dies, rises again, and then eventually he's out fishing again because he doesn't know what else to do. And then Jesus shows up and sits with them on the beach. They have breakfast together, some fish, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. And Jesus was taking someone who had failed, who had deserted Jesus, and he's saying, no, I'm reinstating you because your failure does not define you, and I want to use you. And so the early disciples said, we're testifying. We're just talking about what we've seen. To what? To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. See, all of Christianity hinges on a historical event. If you're new to church, if you're new to Jesus, if you're, if you're like a doubter, a skeptic, or just questioning, Christianity is the best religion to start with, by the way, because it takes just examining one singular historical event to verify whether Jesus is who he says he is. It's the resurrection. The central belief for the followers of Jesus is that Jesus rose again from the grave and therefore is our resurrected King, Messiah, Lord, and God. That was it. And so you know what that means? It means that if Jesus rose again from the grave, think about this, then all that he said is true and trustworthy. So the early followers of Jesus simply took him at his word. What united them was we have a risen king, savior from the grave. Hello, dead man, now alive. And so I'm going to trust everything he said. And so they just simply took the words of Jesus very seriously. And so when Jesus said, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, This is a culture where might and power is celebrated. Pride. We kind of look down on it a little bit in our American culture because it's been so impacted by the Judeo-Christian ethic. But it, it was celebrated. Meekness was weakness. And they said, no, you know what? We're going to take Jesus at his word. And so we're going to love our enemy and we're going to pray for those who persecute us. And they did. Did you know that the early followers of Jesus took Jesus so seriously that when kids were left on the trash heaps, and this was their way of aborting a child, and there's a couple other more gruesome ways of doing that, but if they had a child they did not want, maybe he was of the wrong gender, disfigured, They would just take the child and leave it. And Christians would go and pick up that child and raise it at their own, as their own, on their own expense. Did you know that when plagues would hit 
city and everyone else would run from the city to flee to somehow get to safety. It was Christians that would move into the city and love and care for the sick, much to their own uh, pain, and that they, many died in the process of loving people who were dying together. Why? Because Jesus said, hey, if you love the least of these, they just took Jesus seriously at his word. And so here's the thing. If Jesus rose again from the dead, and this is so important for us in our modern day 20th, 21st century, we don't get the idea of Lord very well. Like we sing it, Jesus is Lord, just declared it in this text that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that means he's master. That means like he's in charge. That means for those of us who, you know, like, like to be in charge, that means Jesus calls the shot. Jesus sets the standard. And here's what the early followers of Jesus did. Whatever you say, we do. That's what it means for him to be Lord. You submit or surrender your will to his ways. And this was completely irresistible. The unity in the midst of diversity, was absolutely irresistible and unstoppable because there was a group of difference together. But what they had in common in Jesus far outweighed what they did not have in common. Well, the church began with Peter preaching on Pentecost, and 3,000 people came to know Christ. And they celebrated this honeymoon season where all the believers had everything in common. But those of you who have been married, you realize the honeymoon doesn't last forever. And for us to understand how this central unifying belief that Jesus is the resurrected Lord and Savior played out, we have to examine the very first division in the church. And so Stephen was martyred. By persecution in, Rome, in Jerusalem, Paul, who originally was called Saul, eventually God got a hold of his heart, oversaw that, put a stamp of approval. In this persecution in Jerusalem slept, the believers were scattered, and then Peter has this vision. He's hangry, I mean hungry, but, but he has this vision where he sees this this. What is it? You know, like a fleece rolled out or a, let's just call it a blanket, uh, rolled out. And on it are all these animals that were deemed unclean for a Jewish person to eat. And God says, well, Pete, you're, you're hungry. Eat. He says, no, no, no. What, whatever, uh, you know, this is, this is unclean. I can't eat that. I'm not going to do that. And, and then the voice from heaven, God says, um, Don't, what I've declared unclean is clean. Take and eat. Three times this happens. He's like going, okay, what's going on with this? I'm having a hangry, like, you know, this is weird. And he says, guess what? There's a righteous man 
uh, named Cornelius who's praying, and I want to introduce him to you so that you can introduce him to my son Jesus. Oh, by the way, he's a Gentile. And at this time, the, everyone had been preaching to just simply Jewish people, and now all of a sudden it's expanding to Gentiles, and this is pretty problematic because there's a deep divide, and there was an us versus them in the Jewish Gentile world. And Peter goes, okay, you said I'm not going to declare what's unclean clean because you declared it clean, so I'm in. I'm going to go declare, and he does, and they come to know Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes on them, and it's this incredible Jesus movement. And then Paul begins to fill this call with Barnabas, and they go start reaching out to Gentiles. And in Antioch, they begin to preach. And by the way, Antioch's where we're first called Christians. Do you know why? It was a mocking term because they called him little Christ. That's what Christian means, because they looked and acted so much like Jesus. Wouldn't it be cool if we got mocked for that, by the way? I just love that. And at Antioch, a number of Gentiles come to know Jesus, and then there's this group. This group shows up. They later become known as Judaizers. And they're trying to go Jesus plus equals salvation. And so they show up. Great, you have Jesus, but here's what you got to do. You have to be circumcised to be saved. And then follow the law of Moses. And all the men went gulp. They went, okay, wow. No one said that about following Jesus. I don't know about this anymore. And Paul and Barnabas are furious. And there's this sharp dispute between the Judaizers and Paul and Barnabas. And they send them back to Jerusalem to talk to Peter and the apostles and the elders to figure out, okay, do we really need to get circumcised for this? Because they're saying, we believe this is what needs to happen. And oh boy. And this is what Peter says after they spent time discussing this. It says, after much discussion... Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. And by the way, we're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit week four of Irresistible. Uh, Just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors could, be a, could uh, have been able to bear? No! I just like to read it the way I read it in my head um, in there. We believe. Here it is. Here's the central unifying belief of a group of difference that was completely irresistible and unstoppable. It is through grace. You cannot earn it. You don't deserve it. It's because of Jesus. Of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It's all about Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. It's all for him. The resurrected Jesus. And this is a group that experienced the resurrected Jesus. They experienced grace and they couldn't help but dish it out to everyone they came into contact. And they said, no, no, no. We're not going to add anything plus Jesus. We're going to keep it all about Jesus. And then James gets up, the brother of Jesus. So by the way, if your brother believes you're God... My brother doesn't believe, you know, anyways, that's a big deal. 
James says this. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Just wonder what hurdles, what hoops have we put in place that make it difficult for people to turn to God? You know, the church in the West has often been known for what we're against instead of what we're for. I I can just think of one group in particular. There's lots of different groups, but I think about the LGBT community. Uh, People that Jesus came, died for, loves, but has heard consistently from the church how wrong they are, often hated. You know the way of Jesus, and if you track and read through the Gospels with those who are far from God, he always led with grace, always led with grace, and then followed with truth. He's perfect grace and truth. With those who are far from God, he always led with grace and then followed with truth. He always led with compassion and then followed with clarity. And unfortunately, we reverse the order and we lead with truth and we lead with clarity and we never get around to grace or truth, uh, grace or compassion. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them, telling them to abstain from food polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, from meat strangled animals, uh, from uh, strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. And they write up a letter to send to the church in Antioch, and everyone celebrating big time because of this, especially the men, but everyone is celebrating big time because of this. See. That list had to do with all the things that were part of their pagan uh, temple worship and all things that were highly and deeply offensive to a Jewish believer. And what they're saying is only Jesus brings salvation. And you are free. And in your freedom, would you be concerned about your fellow brothers for the sake of unity? For the sake of unity where we bring in this fellowship of difference of Jewish and Gentiles together, and where you say, I'm going to abstain for this just because I love you. I'm going to abstain for this because I love you. Now, how did a group of difference unleash an irresistible movement? Well, there was a singular unifying belief, the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ, and they experienced the risen Jesus, experienced the presence and power of the Spirit in their life. In AD 64, the Apostle Paul would eventually end up in Rome. It was poor timing, maybe God's timing, but rough timing, because Nero had just then burned much of Rome down so that he could do a big building project and do all these, um, you know, new... um, yeah, he just was wanted to expand a lot of building stuff. And word got around that Nero had done the burning of Rome, and even their Roman historian Tacitus makes mention of this. And so he's, he was a little off. He's really off, actually. But, but he begins to blame the Christians and then persecutes the Christians, and he was so vile, so over the top. 
So, I mean, you crucified them. You had burned them uh, as lamps for his garden parties at night. You would take animal skin and sew it onto the skin of Christians and then put them into the Colosseum to be torn apart by wild beasts. And it was so intense and so many Christians lost their life that Romans were looking around. They began to be embarrassed. They began to feel bad and pity these Christians. And then they started to become Christians themselves because they couldn't understand They couldn't fathom why a group would stick to this belief. And as they began to examine, they began to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in the resurrection. (laughs) In AD 95-96, Emperor Domitian branded all Christians atheists, and a wave of persecution went out from the church for 200 years, from the time of Nero until the conversion of Emperor Constantine and the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, Christianity was illegal. Now, just to be clear, Constantine didn't make Christianity the, uh, the, the... religion of Rome. Uh, That happened later. Constantine simply legalized Christianity in Rome. Now, there were so many great persecutions leading up to this. One was called the Great Persecution just 10 years before this moment, where Diocletian's goal was to stomp out Christianity in every regard. And there's two massive waves where the entire Roman Empire, they were setting out people. You kind of think Rwanda and what happened there. That's the type of picture that was going on with Christians of being killed by fellow people they lived with. How did a group of difference unleash an irresistible movement in the face of severe persecution? What united this fellowship, what made them unstoppable, irresistible, was their unwavering belief in the resurrected Jesus. That he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he'd do. I take full trust. I, and here's the amazing thing. I don't just talk about new life. I experience new life. I experience the power and the presence of God. And that he is Lord. And so I'm going to pray for my enemy. I'm going to bless those who persecute me. When it doesn't make sense, because that's what my Savior called me to. And so here's what a generous orthodoxy looks like for us. Here's what returning to irresistible looks like for us. And here's the commitment that we make and making as Awakening Church. A generous orthodoxy looks like this. We will keep Jesus the focus. We'll keep Jesus the focus. It's all about him. It's all for him. It's all because of him. We will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's him. It's, we're, and so as a result, we're going to stay focused and keep the majors the majors. Keep the main thing the main thing. Notice that I didn't even uh, put and minor on the minor. We're going to major on the majors, and that's it. In fact, read our doctrinal statement. It's just majoring on the major of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So you look at when Jesus' return, and there's a lot of discussion and even division about that and argument over that. Basically, what I say is, yep, he's returning. How and when, I don't know. 
Now, I have my best guess, but I ain't going to argue about it. I'm not going to be divided over it. I'm not calling us to not think deeply about these things. I'm calling us to put our division aside for the sake of unity, to love others who are different but follow the same Jesus. And so we will keep Jesus focused. We will major on the majors. We will seek first to understand before being understood. Just imagine if just our church, but if the church started doing this, it would revolutionize our society. That we'd seek first to understand the person that we disagree with. We'd seek first to understand the person that, that we, we even deem an enemy. We'd seek first to understand. Instead of this shout match of, hey, you need to hear me. I need to get my point across. And you know what? Once I get my point across, drop the mic and I'm out. You know, the Quakers had this great saying that an enemy is one whose story we have not yet heard. We'll keep Jesus the focus. We'll major on the majors. We'll seek first to understand before being understood. And so we will lead with love. Theologian Scott McKnight wrote this. Love is a great idea until the one you are called to love happens to be unlike you. We'll lead with love. Back to the night that Jesus was betrayed. The high priestly prayer. A few hours before that, he's sitting at what we now call the Last Supper. He just washed his disciples' feet. Took on the, the posture of a servant. Something the disciples wouldn't even do for Jesus, Jesus did for his disciples. And then he says this to them. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another. That's not all that new. That's in the Hebrew scriptures. Oh, hang on. It's new and kind. A new command I give you, love one another in the same way that I have loved you. That's irresistible. He's looking around at that group. You know, Peter was the loudmouth, right? I mean, he was just, he was always popping off. James and John, man, they're called the sons of thunder because they had anger issues, right? I mean, then you got a tax collector, you got a betrayer. He washed the betrayer's feet. In the same way, I have loved you. So you are to love one another by this world will know you are my disciples. You belong. Jesus loves your company. And for us to be an irresistible community, we have to get back to the central belief that unified the early church, this group of difference. It's all about Jesus that he rose again from the grave, and as a result, that makes the difference, and we have more in common than what we have not in common. I recently, uh, well, it's been about six months, but I recently got a new dog, um, Finley. I figured that's a good way to close, right? I mean, look at that face. So cute. Next slide. You can go. 
I know, I love having a dog, man. I've been trying for years. Actually, I promised four years ago that, I, that our kids could have a dog for Christmas, and then I, they would every Christmas tell me, Dad, you promised. I know, but Finley was worth the wait. Now, everywhere we walk, um, we walk, people stop us. They want to know about Finley. They're like, what kind of dog is this? Well, she's a labradoodle. And they want to, you know, little kids want to pet her. And old people, they still want to pet her. In fact, last week, um, I was a little stressed out. I was getting back, and I didn't feel like the message was quite there. So I got up really early. So I was up at 4 a.m. working through stuff. And then by, like, 7.30, I'm going, like, man, if I don't do something that, like, gets my mind clear, I'm not going to be any good. So I went for a run with Finley. And so me and Finley go for a jog, and we're running my neighborhood. And I'm running past this group, and these ladies go, what kind of dog is it? I'm like, I'm going on a run. I don't have time to stop. I'm like, I'm running. And I'm like, oh, it's a Labradoodle. Great dog. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, this is great. Because everywhere we go, you look at her, you go like, what kind of dog is that? She's irresistible. She's just cute. I just wonder, I wonder what it would look like for us to reverse the order, belong, believe, become. And what we believe would unite us instead of divide us if we began to lead with love, loving one another. I wonder if that question, when, instead of when people go, what kind of Christian are you? They would go like that kind of dog, what kind of Christian are you? Because I've never met a Christian like you. I've never been around someone who loves me as I am, who wants the best for me, who doesn't react out of anger when I'm trying to prod you, who's, who's like engaged. What kind of Christian are you? What kind of church will we be? Paul would Write to the Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you're called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How we love each other reveals that we're actually followers of Jesus. May we be that irresistible community.